Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I've become absolutely convinced and I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but you know, when we look at how innovation happens inside organizations or how individuals come up with interesting ideas, I'm, I'm just absolutely convinced that we live in a world where so, so powerful insights come from the most unexpected places and, and the way leaders, you know, increase the chances for those insights or innovations to happen is when they can put, you know, lots and lots of people from lots and lots of different backgrounds, experiences, perspectives together and, and develop, you know, this kind of architecture of participation where people who wouldn't otherwise be talking, people who otherwise wouldn't be on a project team, people who otherwise wouldn't be in the same room are in fact talking, collaborating in the same room. And it's just amazing the kinds of insights that can that's that can pop out. And so I didn't mean to jump from the bio, biographical to the the, uh, the the thematic, but I just think that way of going through life is a much more rewarding and enriching way of going through life. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market burrow's furniture is built for the way you live from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Bill, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I'm excited to be part of the show. Yeah, thanks so much. You know, I came across your story by way of our publisher, who happens to to be Penguin Portfolio, and I didn't realize when they send me, you know, the the book, they're like, oh, by the way, Bill's the the co-founder of Fast Company. I'm like, yeah, we definitely want to talk to Bill because there's probably a lot of things that he can teach us about media and storytelling that uh, are incredibly relevant. But before we get there, um, I want to start by asking, you know, what extracurricular activities did you participate in during high school, and what role did that play on the journey to founding Fast Company? Uh, in high school, oddly enough, I, and oddly enough, meaning my life now, I was kind of a jock. So I, uh, my main extracurriculars were athletic, uh, very involved with, uh, track and field, uh, also played basketball and squash. Um, so I was very, a very determined student. Um, and then I became a very committed athlete that the quote-unquote extracurriculars that and this is quite true put me on a different path in life uh, was at college at Princeton actually when I got very involved is I guess you think of it as a student activist a student protester with the uh, campaign to convince colleges to divest their uh, their investments of uh, stocks uh, in companies that did business in South Africa and so I got very involved in activism and in making the case for a point of view and a certain set of ideas. And then quite specifically, we organized an event where uh, Ralph Nader, the great 
consumer advocate and political activist and Princeton alum came to speak and he and I met and, and hit it off. And um, when I graduated from Princeton, he called me up and said, hey, I've got this idea. I've got a, a book contract to write a book, not about any of this other activist stuff, but to do a book where we find and profile 10 different CEOs and analyze their styles of power and how they're running their companies and how they're having an impact on the world and what have you. And so uh, my all my work in college as a kind of an activist for political change and so on led to this very unexpected and odd opportunity to which, of course, of course, I said yes, to go move to Washington, D.C. and then spend two years as this young kid traveling around the country, sitting for hours and hours and hours with the CEOs, these mega, again, not sure why they agreed to do it, um, but, you know, Dow Chemical and Northrop Grumman, the big military guy. And, you know, yeah, I'm 22 years old with the CEOs of these giants companies. Then Ralph Nader, kind of like what you do with your guests, asking these folks <laughs> questions they're not really used to getting. And then I didn't even think of myself as a writer or a journalist. And then having to sit down actually write a book to make all this come to life. And that then, that blend of, I think, uh, a- advocacy, let's call it, and, and, and a thirst for change, uh, intersecting with a real deep interest in the world of business, eventually got me uh, first to business school and then to uh, co-founding Fast Company, because we always thought of Fast Company as, in a way, an advocacy platform. Uh, Alan Weber, my co-founder, and I were kind of advocating for a a way of looking at the world, the belief system about what business at its best could and should be. And so, you know, you only make these connections looking back. But I see, you know, college student activism leads to meeting this legendary activist who says, hey, here's a, a different kind of idea that leads to a real interest in business as an institution and a force in the economy in society. And then eventually that leads to fast company and all the work I do now. So it was my college extracurriculars as opposed to my high school that really had an influence on me, I think. Wow. So, you know, I I went to Berkeley as an undergrad and and I think maybe my biggest regret is that I never found something that called to me the way this did to you. I'm wondering, you know, having interviewed all the people that you have, I mean, having, you know, built past company, I know you've been exposed to such a wide variety of creative people. I know you do that list of the hundred most creative people in business, which I, yep. every year I look at with envy. Um, and I'm wondering why you think I'm so at a many... point where I read the obituaries every day and try to make sure my name's not in there. That's my big concern, but that's a little different. We're in different stages of life. <laughs> um, why do you think that people, uh, when they're young, miss out or overlook moments like this in their life? Um, first of all, I hope that's changing a little bit. I think it's because so many young people, particularly ambitious young people in the good sense of that word, not you know money, money hunger, anything, but, but folks who kind of want to have a successful career and, and, and do something they're proud of and so on, we've, we've created this, I think, over-prescriptive culture or over-prescriptive model where we really believe that you can sit back whether you're in high school and you know my my got two daughters they go to a high school where it's a great place but they're encouraged to 
write their resumes and stuff. And I'm like, you're writing a resume when you're 16 years old? Are you kidding me? But anyway, they you, they think as a 16-year-old in high school or a 20-year-old in college, you can sit down and, and, and kind of map out, okay, I'm going to get these sorts of grades and I'm going to have this two-year internship and then I'm going to go to a graduate school, whether it's in business or law or architecture or whatever, and then I'm going to get my first job. And you you pretend that your journey in life is something you can somehow control or prescribe in advance. And actually, just last week, I was doing a part of the tour for this new book, and I was uh, in uh, a part of Tennessee where there's a big school, East Tennessee State University. They got a great program in media and communication, so they advised, they asked me to come talk to the students. And you know, one of the one of the first things I said to them is, the whole point of being in college is just to try a little bit of everything. Join a group that you know, you've got no experience or credentials to join. Don't don't really think that what's really going to sort of pop your life onto a new trajectory is necessarily a class you're taking for credit. It may well be, you know, had I not invited Ralph Nader to come and speak, had I not introduced him and intended that speech, I wouldn't have hit it off with him. I wouldn't have done that book. So go to speeches that, you know, oh, it's a nice day. I'd rather not go. But go to that talk and see what's going on. Who knows what you're going to meet? Who I mean, I, I feel like um, life is really this kind of random journey of experiences and interactions and connecting with people and, and trying different things. And it's only now in retrospect for me, 25, 30 years later, I can look back and start connecting all these dots. But I just think too many young people have abandoned their, their youthful enthusiasm way too early and want to have a very logical, very organized, very strategic approach to uh, life. David Brooks, the uh, great uh, New York Times columnist, did a, a big article uh, several years ago for The Atlantic uh, called the organization kid as opposed to you know the famous organization man article and he, he actually went to princeton where i graduated from and spent a bunch of time there said you know kids are walking around within their every minute is is scheduled to the max and they're all thinking about the, and it's it's very impressive in the sense that these kids have a great sense of what they can achieve but i think we delude ourselves into thinking the way you do interesting important exciting compelling work is to sit down at a young age and start crystal balling it. It's just, I, I hope people would, rather than that, maximize the opportunities for, uh, to, to, to meet surprising people, do unexpected things, try a little bit of everything, and you just don't know where life's going to lead you. So I, I think people, in a weird way, take things way too seriously, way too early in life now, and so they miss out on a lot of things that may bump their course into a different way. You know, it's interesting. As I, as I was hearing you say that, I, I think back, <clears throat> I think to kind of, you know, how I would approach college if I were to go back. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Van Wilder, uh, but basically the guy stays in college for like six years and he's a, a member of every student club imaginable. He's friends with unpopular people, popular people. And I always thought to myself, you know, if I approached college that way, it would have been like, there would have been way more room for serendipity and these kinds of collisions yeah. you're talking about. Yep, absolutely. If I hadn't been so rigid about what I thought it would look like. Yep, exactly. And I think that's, by the way, true of it's true of life after college um, as well. I mean, I've I've become absolutely convinced, and I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but 
you know, when we look at how innovation happens inside organizations or how individuals come up with interesting ideas, I'm, I'm just absolutely convinced that we live in a world where so, so powerful insights come from the most unexpected places and, and the way leaders, you know, increase the chances for those insights or innovations to happen is when they can put you know, lots and lots of people from lots and lots of different backgrounds, experiences, perspectives together and, and develop, you know, this kind of architecture of participation where people who wouldn't otherwise be talking, people who otherwise wouldn't be on a project team, people who otherwise wouldn't be in the same room are in fact talking, collaborating in the same room. And it's just amazing the kinds of insights that can that's that can pop out. And so I didn't mean to jump from the bio, biographical to the, the uh the, the thematic, but I just think that way of going through life is a much more rewarding and enriching way of going through life. You know, one of the things I'm curious about, as somebody who you know graduated from a place like Princeton, went to business school at MIT, um, has two daughters, and then became an entrepreneur, I would be really curious to hear what your views on education are currently. Well, uh, you know, I'm not sure I have super developed views on education. I think it's it's kind of fashionable in the creative community to to lament the idea that schools are spending too much time you know pouring information down uh kids throats and and less time creating the conditions for them to be more you know experimentally minded and more uh creative the kind of industrial age education meets the knowledge age needs and so on I'll flip it around the other way and say, and whether we're, anybody is there or not yet or whatever, I when I I spend time on college campuses, you know, sometimes um, spend lots of time in high schools in part because my kids are in high school. I'm on the board of trustees of this school, and I just you know know a lot of educators. I, I really am kind of impressed with how hard so many high schools at universities are working to actually make this transition to the next era of learning and teaching to sync it up with the current and next era of how the world is working. So my oldest daughter is now a sophomore at Georgetown. And at Georgetown, they've literally got this building that sits just outside of the front gates of the campus uh, called the Little Red House. And it's called that because it literally is a Little Red House. And in there, there's 10 or 12 people who who spend all their time it's a, a full-time team led by one of the assistant provosts spend all their time uh, thinking and rethinking and reimagining what a what what education at Georgetown means in the year 2020 and 2025 and what higher education in general means in the year and some of that has to do with the nature of courses and why is there one kind of standard course that meets you know twice a week and gives you three credits. I mean, in, in, in the real world, in many things, people need to go much, much deeper than a traditional course would allow. In other things, people could essentially do one third, you want to pick up one very specific skill, one very tangible uh, you know, knowledge about a certain field that could be much more lighter uh, footprint. Why is it four years why can't we what do we why, how can we use the summers more creatively and then of course what's you know what's the role of technology in terms of lecturing versus all that but so there's this, this explosion of innovative thinking uh there which i'm sure is going on in lots of other places but they so clearly understand 
They've got to be in the business of reimagining. My younger daughter uh, is at an all-girls high school outside of Boston, and they, you know, and, and it's a, a day school and a boarding school, so their kids from you know twenty or thirty different countries there as well. And they spend so much time on, um, you know, getting students to work in project teams that incorporate kids from different backgrounds, kids from different. Um, nationalities. As I say, this is an all-girls school. They spend lots and lots of time thinking about uh, girls, young women, leadership, the kind of gender distinctions in terms of how girls learn versus how boys learn, how girls deal with setbacks and build up the resilience versus how boys do it. So, I mean, you could either look at the education system and say, wow, it's got such a long way to go in terms of what is the you know, if you will, uh, best practice or state of the art in education versus what's going on in the economy or the society, or you kind of look at it the way I do and say, I'm kind of impressed by all of the thinking and experimenting and 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 uh, uh, little innovations that are going on. And my sense is, in lots of high schools and in lots of colleges, you know, by 2020 a lot of this stuff is going to look very, very different. So by and large, I look at what's going on in education. That was a real interesting period of, of ferment and, and dissatisfaction and, you know, pretty well-intentioned people thinking some pretty idea, pretty interesting ideas about how the experience of education, the substance of education um, can change for the better over the next few years. Hmm. So um, I have uh, a question about the, the earlier part of your career working with Ralph Nader and, and being exposed to all those CEOs. I'm yes. curious what you learned about success, leadership, and how you applied those things to uh, founding uh, Fast Company, I, I, which I realize is a big question. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting, I really did have, you know, and obviously I participated in all these interviews and, and you know, did a lot of the writing. But I mean, the bottom line is you've got this world-renowned political activist sitting in the office with the CEO of U.S. Steel or or uh, Dow Chemical or a giant Wall Street investment bank. So I did as much listening as I did talking. And a couple things struck me. One is um, so many of these CEOs seemed like they were almost captives in their own organizations. I mean, so many of their answers and their uh, statements about what they were trying to do and, and how they were doing what they did um, almost left them seeming kind of powerless, if you will. Well, we would like to go into this new market, but Wall Street won't let us do it. Or we know it's terrible to be, you know, shutting down a factory in Pittsburgh and, and moving all, you know, moving our production to to India or whatever the case may be. But what choice do I have? This is the way the world is working. And so there was such a sense of almost kind of learned helplessness, I felt, um, and they're all, they all seem to be like very reasonable people, but so many of the actions that the outside world took as mean or short-sighted or disappointing, from their point of view, they weren't trying to do any of that. They just couldn't come up with any alternatives than to what the constituencies they thought they had to serve were demanding. The second thing is, all the, and this has really struck me, all these folks were much more interesting when you got them talking about stuff other than business. A lot of their business-related ideas, strategies, answers seem like they came from the, you know, officially sanctioned CEO playbook. But what you got them talking about 
science and technology, or you got them talking about the arts, or you got them talking about their church and their religious works, or you got them talking about their childhood and their family and their community, they just seem like genuinely bright, genuinely engaged, genuinely creative people whose answers quite often would surprise you and delight you and engage you. And, you know, I came away from that sort of putting those two insights together and saying, really, why can't we kind of try to transition to a different kind of reality as leaders and entrepreneurs, as business people, where we say, first of all, we're going to build our organizations and we're going to create our companies around a point of view, a set of values, a set of ideas that we personally deeply believe in. And we're going to actually make decisions and make investments and and hire people based on what we profoundly believe is the right way to do it for the outcomes we want to achieve in the marketplace and for the impact we want to have in the world. So let's figure out a way of doing business and thinking about business that doesn't make us feel like I'm a CEO in shackles who got a a Wall Street screaming at me in, in uh, one ear, and I got the economy forcing me to do all these things I didn't want to do in the other, and what have you. And the second thing is, wouldn't it be great if we created an economy and a society where, at its best, you got to be the same person at work that you are at home, that you are in your community, that you are in your church? And why do we think it makes sense? And this is the ultimate, you know, man in the gray flannel suit approach to life. Why do we think it makes sense to live in a world and work in a world where you've got to put your personality on a shelf when you come into the into the office or come into the job? And even when you get to the level of the CEO, I suppose saying, I want to be who I really am 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And, you know, I, I don't know if I made that connection between the Nader days and the Fast Company days now, but I'll, I'll make it in this conversation. I think really one of the driving I mean, people always thought, is Fast Company Magazine about business and the internet? Is Fast Company Magazine about youthful enthusiasm and creativity? And I always kind of thought Fast Company at some level was a magazine about success at a moment in time where the nice thing about being alive 20 years ago when we started being alive now is we all get to think more deeply, think more personally, think more creatively about what we think our definition of success really is. We all want to be successful people. We all want to be part of a successful organization. Well, that's fine. What's that mean exactly? And, and that you can have 100 people with 100 different answers. But the good news is there's so much flexibility and agility now to do the kind of work you want, build the kind of company you, you, want, you want, spend your day with and around the kind of people you want to spend your days uh, with that if we, we tumble upon a definition of success that makes us feel good about what we're doing. Probably the, the better you feel about what you're doing, the more, more likely it will lead to uh, material rewards. And I've got no problem with uh, financial success. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of the reason why, whether people understood it or not, I think they sensed it. I think a lot of the reason why early converts to Fast Company took it so personally and it became this kind of passion brand was because it really spoke to people as individuals who were saying, okay, I've got to figure out what kind of company do I want to 
work for? If I'm into a leadership role, what kind of a leader do I really want to be? And then maybe most importantly, what kind of a life do I want to lead? And can I create a life for myself where my professional achievements and my financial success doesn't come at the expense of everything else I'm interested in, everything else I care about, but rather incorporates all that stuff as, as well. So there is, I don't know how much I'm making this up or not, but I don't think I am. There is a kind of a connection between what I saw as the shortcomings and disappointments. And I don't even mean that critically. I think these, these fellows, and they were all men now that I think about it, um, felt it in themselves when, I, when we spent time with those very powerful, but in a way very conventional CEOs, and then the kinds of companies, leaders, uh, pathways to success we chronicled in, you know, in Fast Company back then. And this is kind of what I write about my books today as well. Hmm. So, um, you know, prior to, to founding uh, Fast Company, were, was there, were there any other alternative choices you were looking at in terms of a career post-business school? Like, were you, was there a possibility of going to work for a company versus starting one? Well, it, not, not so much. I think there was another very important influence in my life. Um, so I went, I'll, um, I'll, uh, the dirty little secret of why I chose the uh, Sloan School at MIT. So I, I'd written this book. And I decided, okay, I really am interested in business stuff, so I want to go to business school. So I looked around, and I discovered the fact that, and this no longer is the case, but uh, back when I was applying, Sloan, the Sloan School, they still have this, has publishes the Sloan Management Review. It's kind of their version of the Harvard Business Review, or you think about the – and it was sort of – back then, the Sloan Management Review was modeled on the Harvard Law Review model in that a student was chosen to be the editor-in-chief of the publication. It was a very – it was a big job. I mean, spent, I spent a lot of time. So anyway, I, the deal was back then, if you're chosen as the editor-in-chief of the Sloan Management Review, you go to MIT completely tuition-free. So I looked at it and said, okay, I've just written this book. It's getting great reviews, doing really well. I'm going to go to MIT Sloan filled with engineers and, and computer geeks and, you know, what are the, the odds that probably are pretty good I'm going to be chosen to be the editor of this uh, thing. So let me roll the dice – and go there and, and try to become the editor. And if I do, I get a, you know, I'm coming out of working with Ralph Nader. You're not exactly rolling in dough. I get to get a free business school education. That's exactly what happened. So I became the editor of the Sloan Management Review. But this happened precisely at this time when one of the great marketing minds ever, uh, you know, deceased, but uh, now deceased, but a great, great Harvard Business School professor by the name of Ted Levitt, who wrote you know this article way back when marketing myopia probably the most important uh, HBR article on marketing ever written he became the editor-in-chief of the Harvard Business Review and Ted is one of the most creative aggressive hilarious just an absolute just a, an amazing human being and he came in and he just blew the roof off the Harvard Business Review and tried a million different things and really unleashed this entirely new approach to um, what HBR could be as opposed to the stodgy, turgid, totally, uh, you know, as, as he said, it was a magazine written by people who don't want to write, read by people who don't like to read. And so he wanted to, <laughs> that was his, and he wanted to totally transform all that. So I was, you know, over at MIT across the Charles River seeing this. So I went over and got to know him a little bit. When I graduated, he said, don't, you know, come work with me. And we'll do, so I, I you know, uh, canoed across the Charles River and, uh, joined the Harvard Business Review. That's where I met another young editor, Alan Weber, 
and he and I became, you know, best pals kind of deal at work. And, and it was there after four years under the tutelage of Ted Levitt that we decided to at that point leave and start fast company. So, um, I went to Sloan coming out of the, uh, experience of writing this book, which we called the big boys, uh, with Ralph Nader. And then at Sloan, I was seeing what was going on with Ted Levitt went over there and he became kind of my second mentor and, and inspiration and then at, at, you know, at some point, Al and I looked at ourselves, and he was spending a lot of time in Asia. I was spending a lot of time in Silicon Valley. We said, my gosh, between the computer and communications revolution, the kind of business model revolution coming out of Asia where companies were organizing themselves in completely different ways, there was this kind of generational power shift in the mid-90s as the baby boomers are now working their way out. But that Bill Clinton was becoming president, and people were listening – You know dressing differently and offices were looking differently and it was the early days of Nike and, and Apple and, and kind of new approach to, to product design um, um, that it was really um, pardon me on the ringer hope that's okay um, it was uh, really a chance to do an entirely new uh, magazine so with Ted, Ted's blessing we uh, headed out to do uh, Fast Company Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So what was the vision for what would this would look like when you started and how has it evolved over time? The magazine? Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, I, I'll, do, I'll do the vision in two different ways. The <laughs> okay. first way is that you, um, we, everybody, had, everybody had their bumper sticker. Our bumper sticker was you take Harvard Business Review and Rolling Stone, you put them in a blender and hit puree and out comes Fast Company. And by that we meant on the one hand, we wanted it to be very much a magazine of ideas, rigorous and provocative business thinking, really challenging our audience intellectually. That was the HBR part. At the same time, we wanted to exude a sense of style, a kind of sense of rebelliousness and, uh, and so on, um, and also a real sense of design and so in the early days fast company it's been trimmed down now but it wasn't as big as rolling stone in its early days but it was an oversized magazine we used really uh interesting paper stock and so we wanted it to be experientially uh as much a magazine of of style as a business so we thought of it as a instead of a lifestyle magazine a work style magazine where it's all it's you know we really expect you to get a lot of stuff out of this. We want to challenge your thinking. We want you to come away with uh, very grounded takeaways and practices. Um, at the same time, it's going to be uh, vigorous and colorful and fun and entertaining. So that's one way of thinking about it. The other way of thinking about it, which is probably the most more profound way, was we didn't ever want it just to be a magazine. We wanted it to be a movement. And what we felt we were doing is using a magazine – to create a kind of flag of affiliation where people who saw the world kind of the way we saw it, which was we are an inflect, you know, kind of an inflection point moment of business in society where we were getting to ask questions we thought had been asked and answered long ago and we're get, get being able to ask them again, which is what is the right way to think about how to build a company. What is the most effective way to be a uh, leader? What is uh, the connection between economics, technology, and culture? We felt some of the most foundational questions of business that, as I say, had been asked and answered in a certain way that led to really big companies where people have to kind of put their personalities on the shelf was we're being upended in a world where you know smaller and smaller groups of people could do bigger and bigger uh, things that every industry was subject to rethinking and and reinvention in terms of the economic models and so on. And so if you thought of yourself 
as a kind of person who is excited about this world, who want to bring this world to life. And then Fast Company was your kind of calling card. And so the way we thought about it early on was we weren't we weren't publishing a magazine. We we're kind of running a political campaign, and we had our we had our platform, if you will. And in fact, we led our very first issue, uh, which was called the New Rules of Business, with a full manifesto. That, and I can still remember the first line: uh, "A revolution is changing business, and business is changing the world." Then we set out what we thought we saw happening in the world of business and the world of work and the world of innovation and the world of social change. And we said, look it, we're going to find a million different ways uh, to bring this world to life, but this is what we're going to write about. So we're not just publishing articles. We're trying to create a curriculum, a teaching curriculum to show people a, what was possible in the world and b how to achieve it. Um, as I say, we're not just doing the magazine. We want to, we want to launch a movement. We want to not just have you read our magazine, but we want to have you connect with the people we're writing about, and we want to have you connect with one another. And so in fairly short order, I would say within two years of the magazine coming out, as a totally grassroots phenomenon, there were fast company clubs sprung up all over the world. And, and at the high point in the late 90s, early 2000s, there were uh, – there are fast company clubs in 190 cities around the world. We we, we didn't we helped or, we helped them if they needed our help. It was really a an organic grassroots sort of thing. But we gave them a name that you're in the company of friends. We called them, and they would meet every month, and they would invite speakers in to, uh, um, you know, you're on the cover of, of this issue's fast company. You live in Oslo, Norway. Come come to downtown Oslo and talk to our group, whatever the case may. I feel like this is long before Meetup ever happened. I feel like we were the precursor to Meetup on that regard, to be honest. And so, anyway, this is, and and it, it, it this is one of the few things. Al and I really did see this sort of looking out. And if you read our initial business plan, we say all that stuff. Now, the one thing we didn't ever anticipate was that the first issue of Fast Company came out in. October, November 1995, Netscape had gone public in August of 95, and that was kind of the shatter occurred around the world for the internet revolution. And almost instantaneously, the world decided that if Wired was the magazine of technology and culture for the internet in that age, we were the magazine of business and leadership and work for the internet age. That, that is not anything we ever intended. Our, our, our take on the world didn't, didn't depend on the rise of the internet or the proliferation of IPOs, but it's how the world decided to uh, to, to think of us, and it certainly worked out well for for Fast Company. But um, so that kind of turbocharged all the other stuff we had been thinking about. Was we want this magazine to be a badge or flag of affiliation for this sort of emerging movement of people. And, and I said, we, we said a political campaign. We thought we had three different constituencies. First constituency was actually young people in big companies. We, we met so many people who were young change agents inside GM, IBM, Xerox. And they were so they, – they loved these big companies. They wanted to be part of them, but they, they really understood so many of their practices and policies were rooted in a bygone era, and they really wanted to change them for the better. But – they were seen as the wackos and the crazies and the mavericks 
inside those companies. And so it was so exciting for them to, oh my gosh, I'm doing this at Xerox, you're doing it at IBM, you're doing it at GM, you're doing it at Citibank. And so actually the earliest adopters were young people in older companies. The second wave were more senior people in younger companies. So in other words, those folks who were leading the startup revolution. And of course, Fast Company became a go-to magazine for the startup crowd in Silicon Valley and Austin, Texas and in Boston and wherever. And then the third, uh, our third major constituency were people who were in the business of business ideas. So the consulting world, the advertising world, the finance world, uh, to agree, folks who had to feel like we need to be part of and master the conversation about the future because we are helping companies in lots of different fields uh, kind of move into the future. So we really thought of ourselves. We were a candidate, and we had these three main uh, co- these three main constituencies. We're going to assemble into a coalition. And again, this is not how most media companies or publishing companies thought of the public. Is there a niche group of advertisers who want to be in our magazine? What kind of editorial do we have to create to make sure we get some readers who would be who want to be delivered to those advertisers? We thought about it completely uh, differently, which is why I think the thing felt so fresh and unexpected and intriguing, uh, particularly in the earliest days. Mm. So, I mean, how is the vision for what it is to be, you know, to become changed as a result of the internet and technology as is, is it transformed? Sure, and, and of course, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very much out of the day today sure. world of magazining. It's been 20 years, so I'm happy to be of counsel and, <laughs> and kibitz and the like. I just think the media landscape has changed so much that Fast Company has, to some degree, had to accommodate itself. To that, and I say that in a couple of ways. First of all, I don't want now. I feel like I'm sounding like an old fart, but <laughs> attention spans just seem to be much, much shorter. So in our early days, we would, and this is a legacy of the Harvard Business Review, we would have no problem publishing four thousand word essays written not by a a journalist or professional writer, but by a thinker or a CEO or some sort of cha- some sort of change leader trying to introduce to the world a provocative new idea, an exciting new take that we thought could and should really shape the conversation about the future of an industry or the future of a a profession. And so, you know, our first big breakthrough on that score was about five issues in when Tom Peters, the great management guru, wrote, you know, probably the single most memorable article in the history of Fast Company called The Brand Called You, introducing, this was back in like 1997, the crazy idea that individuals should think of themselves as personal brands and how the work you do and the the friends you uh, make and the networks you maintain and the way you dress and go through life, all of that, you know, think of, now this is like considered, you know, standard operating procedure today, but Fast Company really put that idea along with many on the map and you could feel, I mean, I, I think of the history of fast company as before the brand called you and, you know, before the brand called you were this, this young cult band playing in bars and people, you know, a small number of people would pack the house, but there'd only be 300 people in the bar and they'd be very devoted. And then next thing you know, we're playing football stadiums because like the whole world after that article knew fast company, it's just hard to do that sort of thing today because you know the attention span just isn't there the second thing 
we worked really hard to do was to create an entirely new cast of characters. And so we, you know, we said to ourselves, you know, back then the, the snotty uh, joke was we're not going to have uh, white guy CEOs in whale belts fe- facing right on the cover of the magazine. They kind of chiseled the uh, chiseled features and the preppy clothing and the, you know, the life of the fortune 500 CEO. We wanted to be about the business of write- writing about companies and people you may never have heard of before, but the minute you meet them, you understand exactly why we're introducing you to them and everything you can learn from them. And that's really harder than it's ever been in the media landscape today. So, you know, today, Fast Company, which I think still in, in, in most, most ways um, is in sync with the worldview and value system and promise and dreams of the early Fast Company. But they just have to – they have to write about uh, – we have to write about Facebook and Uber and Tesla and Google because that's kind of what the audience is demanding – that we hear about. So this kind of business celebrity culture has kind of made it more difficult to, you know, we, we joked that we were kind of breaking new acts that, you know, that the, the business acts had grown very, very stale. We were breaking new acts who then became, so, you know, the great Seth Godin, the first, basically the first time he ever came out in public was in the pages of, uh, fast company. There's so much Dan Pink, uh, uh, you know, Free Agent Nation was an article he wrote for us in Fast Company and then became a book and really put him on the map. And so, so many of the current generation of marketing gurus and thought leaders, all all those folks kind of got their start, came to prominence in the pages of Fast Company. It's harder and harder to do that now in this age of kind of instant celebrity and, you, you know, you get your VC funding and then the entire world knows who you are kind of deal. But with all that said, I think two things. One, this idea of fast company is still a badge of belonging for a certain kind of person who has a certain take on what they want to achieve, the work they want to do. And as I say, their definition of success is, I think, been very, very consistent over the last uh, 20 years. And I think the fundamentally constructive, creative, optimistic worldview that has fired, you know, fired the fast company imagination early on is still very much driving the magazine today. So, you know, the values and themes remain the same. Some of the execution of necessity has evolved at the times. Hmm. So we'll get to the book. Um, I have one last question before we do yeah. that. Uh, what are the implications of today's media landscape for the individual creator? Somebody like me, somebody like a blogger, somebody like a podcast host. I mean, you know, it, it's such a you, – you pointed out that our attention spans are really short. But the other thing I think is, is also worth reflecting on is the fact that there are so many things competing for our attention. Right. And so to me, and I don't have an answer to this, to me, what I, as someone who now spends most of my time, you know, writing books and giving talks and, you know, in a way I'm doing the same work I've always done, which is I want to, what I do now is travel the world, try to, and I'm still in the business of discovering organizations and leaders who deserve a lot more attention than they get by virtue of the power of their ideas and the excellence of their execution. And so I'm always looking for new companies, new nonprofits, new innovators, new individual leaders 
who I say to myself, I can't believe this person is still kind of obscure and I want to really capture their story, learn what they're, they're up to and then translate that company or, or social change organization or individual leader uh, to the outside world. And the way I do that is um, sort of ultimately developing a set of messages, a set of themes, a set of practices that can both change how people make sense of things and also equip them on a day-to-day basis to do things a little bit differently. Now, to me, that, that's, that's the, the uh, area of content creation, and that still comes very easily to me. What has become much more harder for me to figure out is how ideas move through the economy, the society, the conversation. This idea that, you know, 19 or 20 years ago, we would publish a cover story called The Brand Called You, and within a week, anybody and everybody was talking about it. And it was in the New York Times, and it was in USA Today, and people were holding conferences about it. And they, you could, the, the, the food chain, if you will, for how ideas took root, took hold, um, and became something that actually shaped how people thought and how people did business and how people did things. That was just actually very linear and very clear. That's completely up for grabs now. So that the most silly, trivial, uh, ridiculous things, on the one hand, get moved around in an instant. And you know, you could hear a catchy phrase or see a snarky video, and literally within hours or days, millions, billions of people have seen it. So that's great in the sense of these things move through the discourse more quickly than they ever have. Yet what actually sticks is they could, you know, these things are, 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 are forgotten even more quickly than they're seen or discovered. And so what I'm always wrestling with, and I think it kind of applies to content creators. If, if, the, if, if your definition of success as a content creator is, I actually want to have an impact on people's lives. I actually would like to think that I, I have an insight. I tell some stories. I write some stuff that is meant to bring these insights to life that actually people find it, process it, internalize it. And again, on a good day, do a few things differently as a result of that. That food chain, if you will, uh, has never been more opaque to me than it is today. And I think so the, the good news for content creators is you have an opportunity to reach more people more quickly than you ever have before the challenge becomes is it sort of like uh, pinball and you, you hit the ball and it bounces off and then it goes somewhere else and your your idea your contribution is forgotten as quickly as it's discovered or are there ways of having a longer lasting uh, impact and I, I find for me one way of having a longer lasting impact is to and it's like anything else, whether you want to call it a high-low strategy or a, a, a mass uh, selectivity strategy. But I mean, I, I find that these days, the most effective thing I can do is get out in the world and actually speak, address, speak to real-life human beings in audiences, because that's the you know you've got an hour of their attention and they're riveted on you, and um, you really have a a chance when the phones are off, although they're never really off, or the screens are off. But you really do have a chance to have your messages and so on think, sink in. And so in a world where, you know, 
the technology is kind of reshaping everything in terms of how people communicate, I am actually falling back more and more to human to human conversation, presentation, uh, connection. Because my definition of success is to actually, you know, in a, in a very modest way, but if, if I've got these messages, I've got these techniques, I've got these great stories that should give people confidence that they can put some of this stuff to work, I actually would like people to actually translate some of my words into their actions. And I feel in this day and age, sitting around the campfire and actually talking about this stuff is the, the best way to have effective thought leadership and effective communication. Mm, wow. Well, let's do this. Let's get into the book. But um, where I want to start is what what planted the seed for uh, the ideas in this book? Like, where did you think that this is the book that needs to be written? This is what I want to say. Yeah, it's interesting because we started talking about Fast Company. It, it actually goes back to Fast Company in the following sense. You know, I've got this sort of body of work I've been pursuing for 20 years. And it's it's basically a set of a set of messages, a set of propositions about competition and strategy, about connecting with customers, about organizing people to bring out the best in them and so on. But as I thought about it, every almost everything I had, whether it's articles I edited or stuff I had written, all of my settings were in Silicon Valley and Austin, Texas and Kendall Square up in Boston with the life science. And I was spending all of my time learning from hanging out in chronicling the kind of outer five or 10% of the distribution in terms of, you know, the regions people were working in, the industries they were uh, working in. At at some point, I I just sort of said to myself, you know what, 90% of of the world isn't working on driverless cars, uh, virtual reality headsets, uh, Facebook, or whatever the case may be. Could I challenge myself to take that same spirit of creativity and transformation and innovation in this sense. It's kind of how we began the, the conversation where that, you know, kind of anything is possible. We're in an era now where you can conceive of your personal or organizational definition of success and make that come to life. So could I take that same spirit that's as natural in, in Silicon Valley or in Austin, Texas or Seattle as breathing, but locate it in traditional familiar, established, even kind of prosaic sort of setting. So in in this book, I'm writing about retail banks and insurance companies and small hospitals and a fast food joint, even a parking garage, for goodness sakes, rather than, you know, electric cars and, and, uh, you know, digital disruption and virtual this is and, and that's. And, you know, hence the subtitle of uh, doing ordinary things in extraordinary ways. I, I think I've, and again, I think I have in fact discovered and told the stories of a genuinely new cast of characters and from walks of life that, you know, we cool innovators don't spend a lot of time hanging out and thinking about, but who who are doing work every bit as challenging, every bit as creative, every bit as exciting as the work being done in the more familiar places. And what I'm hoping you know, as I said, I like to have an image. What I'm hoping is this book will be an invitation to people in those more traditional. I mean, I can't tell you I'll go and talk to an association or a company that's a you know old style manufacturing company or some association of businesses, you know, in some place that's not, you know, on either coast 
and their reaction is, you know, oh, that's all, that's great stuff, and I'm glad you came, but you know, we've been around for for a hundred years. We're not, we're not Facebook. We're not Uber. We can't do this kind of radical stuff. Or, yeah, you know, I want to be a passion brand and have this tremendous connection with my customers, but we're not Apple or we're not Starbucks. Our product is kind of dull and and just sort of every day how can you expect us to have that kind of relationships and sort of the message of this book my message to them is there's no such thing as a boring or old-fashioned industry they're just boring and old-fashioned ways to do business and so this is a an invitation more than anything else for that more for more traditional parts of the economy to kind of get with the program embrace that spirit of innovation and transformation that is sort of very natural in the more outer edges of the economy. So it is, it's the fast company spirit and sensibility, but, but transported to a very different part of the world. I had tremendous amounts of fun um, visiting with these folks because the, the, you know, to me, the, the test was, are you kind of winning big and doing remarkable things in tough, competitive, long established very hard and slow to change fields. And when you find people who understand they're really breaking from the pack and doing things differently, their energy and enthusiasm is kind of infectious. Hmm. All right. So I think you've given us really a, a, a great sort of overview. Is there, I, I know this might be hard to do in the time that we have. Um, is it possible to do an overview of the core concepts, like sort of the key ideas? Yeah, I think there are. There are just three or four, and I, you know, in a way, I'll do it in a, more of a form of questions than sure. answers. Um, the first one has to do with kind of growth, competition, and the power of ideas. Do you, as a leader, do you as a company, have a definition of success that allows you to stand for something really special in the marketplace and inspires others to stand with you? What really sort of held together all of the different companies I wrote about from a wide variety of fields, and this is going to be language that's very familiar to you, is that their definition of success was no longer, let's try to be the best at what lots of other people already do. Their definition of success is, let's be the only one who does what we do. Let's figure out something we can promise that nobody else in this field can promise. Let's figure out something we can deliver that only we can deliver. Let's get out of the middle of the road in this business and let's become the most of something in this business and then always figure out how do we become even more of that. So it is the spirit of strategic or you know, differentiation. It's really the spirit of strategic differentiation and having a point of view about the future of your industry that allows you to, to do things that other organizations in your field simply can't or won't do. The second set of messages or questions have to do with the connection between what you're trying to achieve in the marketplace and what you're building in the workplace. Do you and your colleagues work as distinctively as you compete and do those behaviors create something memorable and meaningful. And really what struck me about all these organizations um, I write about in Simply Brilliant is, yes, many of them have an interesting piece of technology that really separates them. Many of them have an intriguing new business model that means 
the economics of their business are, are more uh, more attractive than some of their some of their competitors. But what impressed me about all of them is that there is a really deep conviction and a really creative set of ideas that once we figure out what distinguishes us from the competition in the marketplace, we've got to figure out what holds us together as colleagues in the workplace. What does it mean to be a member of this organization? What are the kinds of commitments we're making to one another? What are the kinds of expectations we have of one another in terms of how we collaborate, how we share information, how we jump in to solve each other's problems. And all that gets subsumed under the boring word of culture, and I wish we had a better word for it. But um, in all of the organizations I write about, really, there is such a crystal clear understanding of the connection between how you compete and how you work, what you're building in the marketplace, what you're living in the workplace. Um, And that's where I think most companies fall down. They treat the human side of enterprise as kind of a backwater, as administration. You know, the real business is technology, R&D, finance, and this people stuff is the stuff you have to uh, endure uh, so you don't get sued or to, to, you know, to, to sort of be able to, you know, hold your own recruiting talent, but it just doesn't get the attention it deserves. And the last uh, piece of the puzzle is really about individual leadership creativity and and uh, and to me this is kind of maybe the toughest message or the toughest question to answer and it's the thing that most impressed me about the folks i got to know which is as a leader or as an organization are you determined to make sure that what you know doesn't limit what you can imagine one of the terms i use to describe why it's so hard for companies in long established fields to make big, exciting, dramatic changes, even though they're, they're quite possible to make, is, is this concept of the paradox of expertise. Basically, the, the longer you've been doing something, the better at it you get, the more successful you are. You're now the executive vice president or the CEO. The more successful your company is, oftentimes, the harder it becomes to open your mind and open your eyes to entirely new ways to engage with a segment of the marketplace, different solutions to long-standing old uh, problems, new ways for your people to contribute, make their voices heard, uh, offer up their ideas or what have you, that without ever intending it, because we've got all this wisdom, all this knowledge, all this experience, we allow what we know to limit what we can imagine. And so which is why I think kind of one of the new job descriptions, the new tests of leadership we each have to ask ourselves when we look at the mirror is, am I learning as fast as the world is changing? What impressed me about so many of the leaders of these kind of old guard companies or companies in old guard fields I met is that really the best leaders really thought of themselves as the most insatiable Learners, and they were always looking outside their fields for new ideas. They were always traveling to places that would give them new uh, experiences. They were always inviting into their organizations people and voices and experts from far outside their field because they knew if they could discover some ideas from other sectors of the economy or society that had been proven to work and lift those ideas out of that part of the economy 
and shift them into their old, very traditional, very slow to change part of the economy, it could actually look and be quite revolutionary, even though these, these aren't quote unquote new ideas in the sense that no one had ever thought of them before. It's just that, that they've become standard operating procedure in parts of the economy that aren't connected to whatever field that company is in. Sometimes the best source of a new idea in one industry is a proven idea from another industry. And once you migrate it from over there to over where you are, it feels really revolutionary and exciting. So kind of what ideas do you stand for? Do you work as distinctively as you compete? Are you learning as fast as the world is changing? That's not all the book is about, but I think those are three of the really big, big questions I ask and then try to answer along the way. Wow. Um, well, this has been really cool. You've packed it with uh, a ton of valuable insight. So I have one last question for you, which is how we yeah. finish all our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think it's, it's a sense of identity and clarity. Um, I think of unmistakable, I think of kind of hard to ignore. And whether that's a company, a brand, or a person, the entities I've encountered that are really hard to ignore or to put it more positively, worth paying attention to, are the, the folks or the companies, again, with the clearest sense of this is this is what we do, but maybe important, more important, this is why we do what we do. So this total sense of identity and confidence about what they're about in the world. And then the second piece of that puzzle is clarity, meaning if you genuinely believe that this is, um, well, I guess it goes together with unmistakable creative, but the idea that if you're trying to do something distinctive, you're trying to do something special, that means by and large, you can't do things the way everybody else does it, which means you've got to be prepared to say no to an awful lot of things that more conventional companies or leaders would say yes to. So you've got to, as a company, be willing to turn down business opportunities that may make sense in the short term, may make you some money in the short term, but really aren't core to what you're trying to achieve and the thing, the special thing you're trying to do um, in, in the long term. As an individual, you've got to have a very clear sense of these are the small, very small number of things that matter to me that are going to help me make the kind of impact I want to have. And you can't let yourself be distracted by the kind of random noise of life and organizations that often you have to you have to be able to distinguish between that which feels urgent, all the people tugging at you and all the emails demanding your response versus that which is truly important. That is to say, those things that will keep keep you moving down your path to impact. So to me, an unmistakable creative is somebody or some company with a profound and interesting sense of identity and also a kind of disciplined sense of clarity about, therefore, this is what this means about how I conduct my business and live my life. Wow. Um, well, this has just been phenomenal. Uh, I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been my great, great pleasure. Great to get connected with you. Yeah, likewise. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Next time on The Unmistakable Creative. Like one, cults are everywhere. Like there are more cults out there than we are aware of. And I think there are many organizations that we can see the surface level of or we see from a distance that actually once you sort of crack an exterior layer, cults often have a have a let's call it a legitimate layer, you know, and then a, and then kind of a deeper layer to them. 
um, where where the cultiness begins. Sure. Um, so that you know, you know, so that so that their cults are very very common. I think cult membership is actually more common than we than we tend to think. Bob Gower joins us to talk about the psychology of cults. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, 
K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.